Welcome to Emergency Room, the COVID Diaries, a podcast that tells the story of how the COVID-19 pandemic swept and continues to sweep across America from the perspective of the staff of a large American hospital. My name is Guy Madison, a registered nurse working in the emergency rooms and ICUs of Harborview Medical Center, a level one trauma center in Seattle, Washington, during the times of COVID. These COVID diaries will introduce you to my colleagues and co-workers who showed up every day of the pandemic to treat those taken by this deadly disease. And I will say they continue to turn up because the pandemic is not in the past tense. And I'm Matthew Hall, a journalist with absolutely no medical background whatsoever. We're going to provide a rarely heard inside account of how frontline medical staff responded to the virus and how they cared for those infected by it. The story is told through the eyes of Guy, who is responsible for the day-to-day and night-to-night emergency room response for incoming COVID-19 patients, as well as other hospital officials and medical staff, all the way from the top of the building to the very bottom of the building. I'm the least interesting thing about this podcast, but I'm here to ask all the dumb questions. Questions like, how does one pronounce om... Om, om, Omicron? Om, Omicron. Thank you, Guy. You have got it right there. Omicron, the new variant that that we're seeing uh, replicate in our population here in the US at an alarming rate. Who knew that we'd that we'd be here at this point in time? Omicron is uh, the latest variant, uh, probably. Following on the heels of Delta, which was the variant dominant for the last year here in the US that caused us a lot of problems over the holiday period back in Thanksgiving and before that, in fact, Omicron was first detected in South Africa. doesn't necessarily mean it was from there, but it was detected there. The reason it was detected in South Africa is they actually have extremely robust testing facilities and capacities in South Africa. That's something left over from a rather unfortunate event during the AIDS epidemic that we experienced in the 80s and 90s. Obviously, sub-Saharan Africa was heavily hit. South Africa is one of the most developed nations in sub-Saharan Africa, developed incredibly powerful testing and lab facilities for looking at viruses, obviously HIV, is um is a virus and that's why they were able to detect this omicron variant so quickly what i what i heard from uh, a researcher was how um we identify omicron with south africa but what you just said there guy it doesn't mean that that's where it created but south africa gets connected with oh my god omicron comes from south africa when in fact they should be the doctors and research medical researchers they should be rewarded for being the ones who discovered this new variant so that's kind of an interesting twist from my perspective about how where something is detected instead of it having a negative connotation it should be a positive connotation that those doctors and researchers in south africa discovered it and identified it 100% agree that they should be lauded as heroes for their work there and i can only um think to myself and this is purely my opinion that there's some element of racism involved in the whole thing in our last episode we spoke to summer 
Cleveno Wally, CEO of Harborview Medical Center. That's a level one trauma hospital in Seattle, Washington. That's a big job. It, indeed it is. And Summer does a wonderful job and it's fantastic. If you haven't heard that podcast, please go back and take a listen. It is awesome. Uh, this week, we're going to speak to Darcy Jaffe, who used to be the chief nursing officer at Harborview and used to work closely with Summer in Summer's previous roles. And now Darcy is the vice president of quality and safety at the Washington State Hospital Association. Who knew that quality and safety in a hospital would be a very big deal? <laughs> Ah, Matthew, you jest. Um, yeah, her, her role's vital, and we're going to turn it over to Darcy to introduce herself and perhaps uh, let us know exactly what quality and safety means at the state level. I'm Darcy Jaffe, and I am the Senior Vice President at the Washington State Hospital Association, and I oversee the clinical improvement and quality and safety work that we do with the hospitals. So our um, reason for existing is to make healthcare better for everybody in Washington. And the way that we do that is by helping the hospitals to work together so that we can have some collective actions to improve together. About 15 years ago or so, the hospitals in Washington all committed to not um, compete on improving safety and quality for patients. So that if one hospital, you know, found a great way to make things better, that they would share it. They wouldn't keep it as sort of a marketing or, a, you know, a competitive edge. And they've been very sincere and worked really well together like that. And we continue to do that. It was a foundation, I think, that has really helped Washington to have the amazing outcomes that we've had compared to other parts of the country. People working together. What an amazing idea. Isn't it crazy? I know. And especially in this world, it seems like that's really not the way we do things anymore, right? So. No, unfortunately. And when you say um, the great outcomes we've had in Washington, you are referring to what has happened over the last couple of years during the times of COVID, right? Where we've had right. better outcomes. Yeah, totally, guys. So the, uh, you know, we have had one of the lowest death rates from COVID of the entire country. We're usually in the, you know, there may be like four states that are doing better than us. But in general, we've been amazing. I, you know, we have not had to go into crisis standards of care like a lot of other states where, you know, literally people are having to, hospitals are having to decide who lives and who dies because there's not enough equipment or enough staff. Our hospitals have been, and our hospital executives have said, no, you know, no hospital is going to go into crisis. We're going to make sure we work together and, you know, and all share the um, share the burden. And that's worked and that's still working. So, so help me out because I don't know much about the healthcare world because I don't work in it. That's why I'm here. What, what does quality and safety mean? Does that mean you're in charge of people getting fluffy pillows when they're in a bed and no one trips over a cable or what does it mean? Well, that's, you know, the fluffy pillows could be part of something that we're doing to try to make things better. The tripping stuff actually is, uh, as you, you know, you say that and we kind of laugh about it, but that is one of the things that we do. We want to make sure that there are um, processes in place and the hospitals have, you know, if one hospital's figured out how to make sure staff don't trip over wires, then we want to make sure we share that, right? 
uh, it is amazing that, you know, the different ways that unintentionally people can get hurt in hospitals. And we do our very best to reduce that. The, the goal, right, is to have zero harm in healthcare. You know, I don't know if we'll get there, but we continue along that way. With COVID, some of the ways that the hospitals have worked together is in the beginning, if we go back, right, a couple of years, we think about when things were first starting and we really knew very little, uh, and especially with their PPE. I don't know if you remember, guy, the PPE issue was just awful and yeah. people were scrambling. And but, but we did have hospitals that would share with each other and they would um, do it willingly and happily. So even at that, you know, the very beginning, we were um, talking to each other and it wasn't like some areas of the country where we had hospitals that were, you know, struggling and overrun and you'd see tents in the streets and other hospitals that were doing just fine. That just didn't happen here. So uh, at the bigger picture of safety and quality, though, the hospitals in Washington have worked together. Initially, the very first thing they agreed to was working with improving maternal health which is something that we continue to do. And Washington has some uh, really good outcomes because of that. Right now we're working on birth equity and that's been going along all through COVID and in continuing to improve that because babies are still being born and moms still need to have good, safe care. Can you give an example of a situation where the Washington State Healthcare Association has implemented or helped implement something across different hospitals that has maybe specifically helped maternal health in the COVID setting? No, okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to be full discretion. The um, maternal health is my, even though I'm a nurse, it's like the thing I know the least about. <laughs> like I wanted to protest having to do that part of nursing school. But, um, and having worked at Harvard. Darcy, me too. <laughs> right? <laughs> After I did my clinical, I went nowhere near labor and delivery ever again. Right, and we're both, we were both at Harborview where they don't have that stuff, Right. Right, so is- luckily I have so I have directors that know that stuff. I'm not going to worry about it. But they've been doing an amazing work. There's over 50 hospitals in Washington that have birthing programs and they also have been working together and as as we hear things about COVID and pregnancy, we're making sure that everybody gets the right information and we've been having media briefings for the last few months, every week or every couple of weeks, and we'll bring our OB docs on and they can talk in, about what's working, what's not working, reassure the public, make sure that all of our hospitals have the latest information because we know it continues to evolve. And that's been amazing so that we you know, haven't had to sort of miss a beat. Some of the hospitals are having staffing challenges. And so they work with other hospitals to transfer patients. Generally, uh, when they're having um, planned C-sections, right? And they need to find a hospital where that can happen. And so we can convene the hospitals and help them um, work together on that. So so what has changed, and it might seem an obvious question, but what has changed in a delivery setting in a maternity ward for, as far as COVID has impacted that? You know, one of the things we're actually struggling with right now is what's the right PPE in the labor? You know, the jury's still out on what the right science is regarding transmissibility with women who are in labor, right? Do you need to have, everybody needs to have an N95? You know, should the labor partner be in there with them or is it safe, that sort of thing? We're really lucky in Washington. Well, I don't know if luck is the right word, but because we've been doing this longer than anybody else in the country, right? We have a lot more experience and we're able, and because we are collectively sharing the outcomes, Hospitals know this has worked or this hasn't worked. Or we've had outbreaks or we haven't had outbreaks. 
And so we were able to um, put together visiting and laboring standards so that we could say it's okay to have someone there. And here's the conditions that we can have it. It's not, you know, you can't do what was happening pre-COVID or maybe a whole family's in there. If that's something that the, you know, the mom wanted, we can't do that anymore. So that's really changed. Um, it's a lot more restricted in that area. Yeah. And I think we had, you know, uh, on a previous episode, uh, Chloe Bryson Khan mm-hmm. actually spoke to the um, heightened uh, susceptibility of pregnant women to coronavirus because of the condition of pregnancy, making them um, somewhat immune compromised, making all these things that we're trying to do to keep people safe even more important in that setting. Exactly. You know, one of the things that um, our uh, WISHA team has done and worked closely with the Department of Health here in Washington to try to revise guidelines, to try to reassure women who are pregnant, that you should get vaccinated. There, you know, there's a lot of different information out there about that. And you know, I can imagine it could be really scary to make that decision to know if it's the right decision or not. Uh, but we have been doing a lot of public outreach and um, you know, looking for opportunities to make sure people have the right information to make the best choices. I know that your organization and you spoke to some of the challenges with uh, rural areas before, and I know your organization coordinates collaboration between rural and urban areas in Washington state. Can you speak to some of the challenges that rural hospital, rural based hospitals are having with COVID and how your organization has helped them to overcome those problems? Yeah, perfect question. So first, all the hospitals in Washington, there's about 113 of them belong to the association. And we have um, particular programs for the rural hospitals because, as you said, they have different needs and uh, some challenges that the more urban hospitals don't have. In addition, we do have for our hospitals that are bordering Idaho in particular, um, and they have a lot of previous transfer agreements to help out some of those rural hospitals there. I'll talk to that first. Because Idaho has, a really, has had a really different response to COVID than Washington has, the people in Idaho have had higher rates of COVID and the hospitals there have struggled more. And so there have been times when the uh, bordering hospitals between Washington and Idaho have had uh, an increased number of people coming over from Idaho for care. And we've had to sort of figure that out. And we've actually talked to the Idaho Hospital Association about, you know, what can we do to help them so they can keep their patients there? Not because we don't want to help them, but really Washington was... uh, you know, the hospital capacity is pretty full here as well. So there's that. Some of it is that and when we have good relationships with the Alaska Hospital Association and the Idaho Hospital and Oregon. And so we do try to share if we have um, protocols or policies or anything like that that could help them. We want to share that with them as well. So for our rural hospitals in Washington, and there's about 50 or so, depending on how you define rural hospitals in Washington, and they're Many of them are critical access hospitals, which means that they have to be uh, geographically distanced from each other. I think it's 30 or 35 miles apart at the very least. Um, and they can't admit more than 25 patients. And many of them have daily, historically have had like daily census of like three or six. They're mostly really a come into the ER, treat and transfer more situation. Most of them don't have ICUs. Um, Many of them have, you know, maybe one doctor in the hospital in the off hours. And some of them are the literally the only healthcare facility in the area. 
And so they, you know, they do have more challenges and they were slower. If you remember correctly, in the beginning, really the COVID cases were in that sort of greater Puget Sound area, right? King County that Harborview is in, and then the counties just to the north and south of them. And it took a while for COVID to start to be um, noticeable in the rural areas. And that um, was actually good. It gave us some opportunities that by the time I got out there, we had we had like visitor protocols and we had P better PPE understandings, that sort of thing. But I had the opportunity of back in the beginning of the pandemic when Governor Inslee um, set up a COVID task force and uh, brought in a retired uh, Navy vice admiral to lead it, to go around with her to, to the state. And we went to the different rural hospitals. It was very interesting they um, were reaching out to their communities for PPE. They had community members that were making masks and gowns and stuff like that, because one of the other problems with the rural hospitals when it came to PPE was that they don't have the buying power that the bigger hospitals had, right? And so it was really hard for them to get noticed and get you know, in line for much of the PPE that was out there. So that was one of the really big noticeable things for those sorts of things. And, you know, the staffing has been hard everywhere, but if you're a hospital that only has, you know, one uh, x-ray tech, period, then um, if they get sick or something happens or if your volume goes up, it, you don't have the wiggle room that you do in some of the bigger hospitals. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that really the small hospitals don't have the specialists, right? And the other interesting thing that we learned is that transport sometimes is really hard because they might have, you know, one or two ambulances, and if one of those ambulances has to drive a patient five or six hours one way to get them to a hospital, then they're out of commission for the whole community. And that, that became really problematic and, um, and still, still now does in some areas. Would you say an example of that is if they admit a patient that um, becomes critically ill with COVID and they need to transfer to a hospital bed in Seattle for um, definitive treatment and they're going to transport, that takes out their ability to respond for the rural area they service for that for that time until the ambulance gets back, right? Exactly, right. And yeah. if you think about it, for some of the, um, say, the northeastern parts of Washington that do tend to get pretty cold and, you know, have bad weather in the winter, even just the ability to drive through the passes and that sort of thing mm -hmm. become problematic. Yeah. And I know we'll talk about staffing a little bit mm -hmm. later, but it's yeah. interesting you bring that up. I have a friend who lives in Ferry County in Washington, which is where Republic is. Yeah. They cannot get any staff to come to their hospital. Yeah. Um, travelers don't even want to go there. Who wants to go to, I mean, it's no, beautiful yeah. out there, but who wants to go to Ferry County on a travel assignment in the middle of winter? It's a hard sell. Definitely, Guy. The, in the best of times, rural hospitals struggle with staffing. Yeah. So I have a question about staffing because we're hearing, well, I'm hearing a lot of anecdotes and stories about healthcare staff on the front line burning out and quitting and not being able to be replaced. How does that affect quality and safety in a hospital if you can't get stuff? That's, you know, it's interesting. We've had lots of conversations about that. Like, what, you know, how do you, it's really hard to measure for one thing, the um, relationship between staffing and safety and quality outcomes, because there's so many factors associated with it, right? But we have been looking at 
um, and having lots of conversations, at least like what's people's perspective regarding, you know, the staffing and it's different. Um, you know, it's, it's so many uh, different kinds of people are involved in taking care of a patient that um, we think, you know, more on the delay side, right. Where people are having to delay getting care. Um, and in some situations we're having ICU beds get closed because there's not enough staff to take care of them. And so that has a potential impact if it delays people getting transferred from one of those rural hospitals, right, to one of the bigger hospitals. We've been uh, looking at things like, you know, do we see more patient falls because staff can't get to them quick enough, right? I mean, there's some of that that is seems inherent with you have to put all, especially with the COVID patients, you have to put all that PPE on, right, before you can get into the room so it's not as easy. And then um, with the, you know, the burnout and... Um, I mean, it's hard. I mean, this has been going on for so long, right? And you can't ever get away from it. You know, you go home and it's still there. And as the um, COVID numbers have gone, you know, down and up, even when they're down, the hospitals are really full because people are taking advantage of those sort of COVID downtimes to get care they couldn't get before, right? Yeah. And I think that we've we've seen sicker patients coming in for chronic conditions like diabetes and heart Mm -hmm. failure because they've not come to the hospital during the high COVID census times, probably wisely so, mm-hmm. but then they've decompensated with their chronic illness and now they are sicker than they would have been and they require more help and um, and more treatment than they might have had they been able to keep up with it. So it's definitely a knock-on effect that's very hard to get in front of. You, you got it right. And we're hearing that guy everywhere, not just in Washington, but, um, you know, everywhere. You know, one of the things that the pandemic has really uh, put a spotlight on that was not not great before. I know Guy at Harborview, this is a this was a problem that when I was there, we, you know, were struggling with is patients that are ready to be that need to be in what's called post-acute care. So a nursing home or adult family home when they're done with their hospital course of care, that um, that has really contributed to some of the uh, capacity problems and access problems. We have hundreds of patients across Washington that are ready to be discharged from the ho- from the hospital, but there's not a there's not a safe place for them to be discharged to. And so, if you think of those beds needing to be staffed, right, and needing to be taken care of, it does, um, in a way, kind of um, artificially look like we have, you know, not enough beds. So it's hard to know from the quality and safety there. So the staffing actually in those uh, nursing homes and adult family homes. And the problems there and the rules that they've had to follow um, related to COVID um, probably has had a bigger impact, I would say, than what's going on inside the hospitals. Can we explain what a travel nurse is and why people would quit a permanent job to be a travel nurse and how that's impacted hospitals during COVID? Yeah, I mean, the travel nursing is really interesting. You know, the travel nurses have been around a long time, right? And and why do people do it? Historically, I've, you've always made more money being a travel nurse than in your, you know, a permanent position. And you, travel nurses tended to be younger. You know, they were younger in their career. They didn't have as many kind of ties to a particular location, right? And were able to travel. And so you got to travel and see parts of the country and and have a job. And it was just, you know, it was interesting. So people, there were certain people that just like to do that, right? For a while. It wasn't a long-term career for most people. 
Yeah, they're usually three-month contracts. And just to fill in, Harborview hired travel nurses all the time well before COVID. I don't know if we mentioned, but Darcy was the chief nursing officer of Harborview, so she is intimate with this whole process. Um, during our trauma season in the summer where mm -hmm. our census goes up, we always uh, brought in nurses on travel contracts to make sure that we had enough nursing resources to cover the extra high census we have during the trauma season. So they've always been there. They're three-month contracts and people, you know, summer's a nice time to come to Seattle. And so it was a, it was a popular assignment. We didn't have a lot of trouble attracting travel nurses to our hospital. Probably that would be similar at most of the hospitals in the, in the area. I think what's happening now is that the money is so great. Um, I was on a stat shift the other night. Um, I did a night shift with the stat nurses and we spoke to some of the floor nurses and um, we spoke to a, a girl who was, it was her last night, the next night, and she was going travel nursing. She said she doesn't have a choice economically if she wants to live in Seattle and buy a house. Mm -hmm. She needs to go and earn a lot of money. And at the moment they're earning you know, up to $6,000 a week, which if mm -hmm. you do the math is north of $250,000 a year. So if you can travel and make that, then it can set you up for the future. And I think that's the problem that we're seeing in urban areas. Darcy, do you, um, how does the association help um, with staffing issues for hospitals, if at all, or are they just in their own in their own boat for that one? You're right. I mean, people are leaving for the money, right? And, you know, and, you know in some ways, I if I was in that, you know, if I was younger and didn't have dogs and kids and stuff like that, I might be tempted myself. Um, what's that, you know, and it puts the hospitals in a tough situation. Like you said, Guy, it used to be that there were, um, Harborview would, up, you know, would use their travelers in the summer. And they were actually a great recruiting pool because people would come and say, hey, this is great. We want to stay, right? And their uh, hospitals always use traveler nurses um, for filling in like a maternity leave or, right, stuff like that where there's... Mm -hmm. You know, you just need them for a short period of time. The um, problem we're having and the pay right now is crazy. And it's like that all over the country, right? And we've actually talked about should we try to do, you know, do something with our state so that the travel um, companies, you know, couldn't charge those kind of rates. But the problem is, is that they have so much business right now. If one state said, well, we're not going to accept those prices, they just go somewhere else. Yeah. And, right. The other thing, though, that um, it's what the market will bear, what the market will bear. Right. And be, and it's this weird place where hospitals um, would prefer, obviously, for many reasons, not to have to use the traveler nurses. And I know that, you know, the permanent nurses often resent the, what the travel nurses are getting paid. So you're in this like weird situation where you got to have staff and you're desperate for staff. So, you know, this is all you can get. But because it costs so much for those, you can't do other things. And so it's not sustainable. We're going to have to figure out a solution. We're working with the American Hospital Association at a national level, right? Because hospitals all over the country are struggling with this to see if there's something that can be done about it. Oh, well, I'll tell you the other thing is, though, Guy, is that one of the things that is really clear is that the nursing schools aren't putting out enough nurses, new nurses, right, to compensate for the ones that are retiring or moving along for all kinds of different reasons. And so we have been working um, with the um, state government and with the nursing schools to, and with the hospitals to um, get a sense of like how many more um, slots could the nursing schools open. And in order to open slots, there have to be places for them to get their clinical training. How many mm -hmm. more, you know, clinical training slots could hospitals accommodate if they could have more nursing students? 
And so we're really working with that. And then with our in the next legislative session is one of our priorities to try to work at getting funding and getting processes in place so that we can get more nursing students in because the applications to nursing schools are um, continuing to go up. And there are most of them are getting most of the qualified applicants are getting turned down because there aren't enough uh, nursing school slots. Psychotic freakout. Red-faced, spittle flying from his lips, straining against the behavioural restraints on all four limbs, a man in the throes of a psychotic break. You're the one who killed the dog, he says to the nurse as she discusses COVID testing with him. An attempt to contract with the psychotic patient is made. We could get you a sandwich. Would you like a sandwich? If we can swab you, we can get you a sandwich. You can stay here with us. We can keep you safe. At first he agrees, but later will not interact with us, turning his head away when we ask him again if we can obtain a specimen. Good luck with this one. Another more gently disposed psychiatric patient is in the bed with his dog. This is all taking place in our emergency room. His companion, the dog, he insists as a registered care animal, but it's clearly just his companion. He seems a sweet man, and he would like a cup of tea. He is restrained, but only in one limb. He's presenting for suicidal ideation. This means he's verbally told us that he's thought about harming himself. The next level would be that he verbalizes a plan to hurt himself. Then we would need to admit him for his own safety. He also needs to be ruled out for coronavirus, due to a nasty cough. I get him a cup of tea. He's already agreed to be swabbed. This work with both the physically and mentally ill goes on in our emergency department day and night, every day of the year, year after year after year. The work of emergency medicine has not slowed down for our mission population. It hasn't slowed down for the COVID-19. Sure, things are quieter under lockdown, less car accidents, less recreational injuries. But not everything stops for COVID. Shootings, stabbings, acts of violence still require emergency room attention. How has COVID affected how you've had to deal with mental health populations and, and their health care? Uh, so first off, I, my background, I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So this has you know, been my uh, area of um, my soapboxes are very high in this subject. And just as I talked about the um, difficult to discharge situation was bad before COVID and the mental health situation was bad before COVID. And it's just gotten more complicated and um, it's gotten more complicated and it's also been positive in the fact, in the way that there's so much conversation about mental health is everybody, right? And COVID is affecting everybody's mental health. And I think that's true. I don't think there's very many people that haven't been affected in some way with their emotional and mental health. However, for people with serious mental illness, serious uh, substance use, 
We have seen um, their access to outpatient care has gone down. Some of the rules that have been put into place in, in regard to even people being able to come into clinics with COVID with some of the, the masking requirements and social distancing requirements makes it really hard. And uh, although telepsychiatry has really um, exploded and it's, you know, it makes access um, possible for some people that it wasn't, it's not really a replacement for people that really need that in-person approach. And so it's been hard. The other thing that the telepsychiatry has done is it has taken, a, has recruited away people that have been in clinics before. Now they're doing a lot of telepsychiatry. And so there's um, particularly with licensed therapists and licensed social workers, you know, they're really hard to come by now in the mental health center. So that reduces the, it's really hard to get appointments. Um, and so you have that combination of there's the the infection control requirements that are important, um, but make it really hard. Then um, the um, inpatient beds, we never had, we, you know, we were, we were boarding people way before the pandemic who were waiting for inpatient beds. And now it's just worse. Um, again, just, you know, hundreds of people, if you are so sick that you need to be involuntarily detained and even, you know, and Harborview has a really big uh, footprint in that area you're you're very seldom going to find a bed. You're almost always going to have to wait in an ER somewhere. And that's a problem, right? So then if you get admitted to an inpatient um, unit, either a freestanding psychiatric hospital or a unit in a, a acute care hospital, there's infection control requirements as well, because on the psychiatric units, patients interact with each other a lot more than they do on, a, say, a medical surgical unit. They need to wear masks. They need to social distance, right? They're Dining areas need to be different. Very hard for someone who is struggling with psychosis or, you know, or some kind of uh, other mental health condition where their cognitions are impaired, where their, you know, emotions are impaired. The staff are in masks. I mean, the whole feel of the situation is really different. Um, they also struggle with also the same as we, I talked about the patients who have, it, we have a hard time finding a discharge for them. The same thing with the people that are admitted for behavioral health. Our ERs are seeing a lot more business with just people with serious mental illness, people with having mental health problems that have never had before and they just don't know what to do. The other thing that we're seeing recently, probably more and more in the last couple of months, are kids. And a lot more kids in the ERs, a lot more kids coming into their pediatrician's offices with some really bad struggles and the um, access to care for those kinds of um, treatments is, is almost non-existent. And so we are seeing more and more our hospitals are having to hold kids, you know, little kids even, um, who need higher levels of care or need some specialized care and it's just not there for them. Um, and that is something that there is no easy answer for. So it's, 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 it's not a good place to be right now. No. And I know you have um, a director on your on your team that spe that is specifically um, working on mental health issues. Mm -hmm. What sort of programs do they focus on? You know, we um, really believe that mental health is part of everything, right? And so we do do some um, specifically for like the inpatient units. You know, what are some of the um, improvements related to? And again, it's been mostly COVID, right? And how do um, they do group therapy, right, when you have COVID? And how can they take care of a patient that maybe becomes COVID positive on the unit? You don't want to have to close and quarantine the entire program. And, and in the beginning of the pandemic, that was happening. And that you know, just made things even worse yeah. for the community. 
Um, so we pull them together again, sharing, you know, what's working, what's not working. And for the sort of general hospitals, we do a lot of uh, general education, right? And related to COVID, you know, what do you do if a patient's behavior is um, not safe and you need to quickly interact with them? And how do we make sure that we're keeping people as safe as possible and not unintentionally transmitting COVID? Complicated things that no one's had to deal with before, right? Yeah, I will say, because obviously, you know, we're stretched at Harborview and we have a lot of psychiatric patients with medical issues that need to be on medical floors at Mm -hmm. the moment for treatment, both of COVID and other things. And there are a lot of code grays, which are responses Mm -hmm. to behavioral situations in the hospital these days. I think speaking just anecdotally, I hear code gray paged a lot more than I used to. And I think that that might be related to that, but that's conjecture on my behalf. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, everybody's so stressed out, right? I mean, patients are stressed out, families are stressed out, healthcare providers. And so that in and of itself lends to more risk for um, interactions to be, to go haywire. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm here, I've heard um, from some of the hospitals of patients coming in, family coming in, demanding certain kinds of treatment for COVID that are outside, right, the standards. Invermectin, perhaps. <laughs> exactly, stuff like that, right? And getting so angry at the healthcare staff because that's not something that is going to be possible for them, um, that they've had threats. And uh, I know people are scared, right? And they're just desperate for some, you know, for their loved ones to get better, for themselves to get better. But I mean, that's a whole new layer of stress that, you know, that healthcare staff have not had to deal with in the past. And so we, we, again, we pull the hospitals together. We say, okay, what can we do? How can we help each other? What's some good advice or recommendations that might be useful? How can we work with local public health or with our state department of health so that we can get the message out to reassure people, to try to um, not leave it on the kind of on the back of one individual hospital or healthcare provider. So that's really your role then with the association in terms of misinformation and education of the public is to coordinate so that everyone has the same good flow of scientific information available and are aware of some of the, would you say, aware of some of the misinformation issues that are out there that are affecting the situation you just explained? Yeah, definitely. You know, some of the, you know, with the media briefings that we do and try to get the experts out and working with the Department of Health in particular, um, and how can we, sometimes we're directly getting the information out. Sometimes we're um, helping to make sure that uh, the information is available for other people to get out. Um, but it really is, we're all in this together and we, you know, we need to make sure that we're all doing our very best together. I do believe everybody is trying to do the best thing that they can and that the information just continues to change and we respond to the information that we have. Yeah, and we're going to get another blast of it here shortly with um, with uh, Omicron. Mm-hmm. Right, and who knows what, we don't know yet what that even yeah. is going to mean. Mm-hmm. It's scary, right? It is, It's and it seems, it's scary, and it's also um, just another blow to the, what seems to be a, ne- a never-ending a never-ending situation. Is, uh, is Jay Inslee on your speed dial? <laughs> uh, Probably not Jay, but, you know, we talk a lot with his staff. Mm-hmm. And um, do a lot of um, provide. Um, so I'm sort of the you know the clinical uh, person on the leadership team at, at WISHA, and so I, <laughs> I um, get uh, assigned to those uh, work groups and the task force and the 
pulling the people together where we need to do some, make some clinical recommendations. And so that's pretty fun, actually. And it does, it, I think my uh, coming to Wisha from Harborview um, just before a pandemic was really timely because, you know, at Harborview, we were always like waiting for the next, you know, disaster, disaster right? <laughs> and drilling for it and um, talking out like, what would we do? Um, and so that expertise and that experience, I, you know, do think that really helped us to be able to move forward more quickly, even with the, you know, the Washington Medical Coordinating Center, because Harborview was doing the King County, you know, before they became the Washington Medical Coordinating Center, I knew to go talk to Mark Taylor, or Steve Mitchell, and, and, you know, and tell the state, I'm like, these are the people that know what they're doing, you need to go talk to them. And I was able to pull that together. And so I felt really proud about that. Um, when I brought um, Vice Admiral Bono um, to Harborview to meet with the team that was doing that coordination in King County, she was so impressed. And she's like, yeah, you're right. This needs to be statewide. And, um, and that was cool. Do you think that that was, um, uh, that that was made easier because of your previous um, life at Harborview for well over 20 years? Yeah, yeah, definitely guy. I think being at Harborview made it easier to do the work that I needed to do at WISHA. Do you have any closing comments? We're out of questions, <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, this is this has been really interesting, and um, I will say that it's super interesting for me, and hopefully for the people who listen in who may not have had a lot of exposure to Wisher and um, and to the work that's being done at the next level above the actual hospital level. Yeah, um, well, I guess a couple of things. I will share with you, and I don't know if this needs to be on your podcast or not, but, and, yeah. you know, when this first started, I was like, oh, maybe I should go back to the hospital and, you know, go back and work in the hospital because I need, you know, I want to make sure that I, I'm doing my part. You know, then I'm like, you know what, my part can be helping the hospitals to do the work they need to do right with the patients. And so that was, that sort of relieved me a little bit. But um, the other thing, though, just to put in there is that, you know, as I talked about the hospitals here, um, the hospital executives said, you know, we're going to make sure that no hospital in Washington goes into crisis on its own. That is unique in the country. And the, um, when uh, Cassie Sauer, who's the CEO of WISHA, uh, shared that with some of her um, colleagues in the associations across the country, they all said our hospitals would never agree to that. And I was really proud of us for doing that. And they continue to have that commitment uh, and so I would say for, you know, frontline people in Washington, if you're not aware of that, then you should, you, you know, you should be and you should be proud of the health care that we're doing in Washington, because we we have made it safer. And we've, you know, the quality of care has been has been good, even I mean, it's not as good as we'd like it to be right. Um, well, it's a it's you want to you're always attempting to approach the safest situation that you right. can, but there's always right? it can always be done better. It could always be done better. And, you know, and we've maybe had to make some decisions like we're going to not do this where we would have normally done it, but we're still keeping people alive in a way that other places haven't been as successful. And I got to say kudos to you and your team and to all of us in healthcare in Washington, because not only was it one thing to agree to that, um, to that condition that none of us would go into crisis care, um, you've actually lived it for now what's approaching 24 months, right? 
Right. Exactly. No, it's we'll, we'll get through it. I don't you know, we don't know when the through it will be, but we will get through it. I'm confident. That was Darcy Jaffe, Vice President for Quality and Safety at the Washington State Hospital Association. Who knew that good things happen when organizations and people cooperate and work together? That's right. It was fascinating what Darcy had to say. And despite the challenges of coordinating between rural and urban areas, between states and with national organizations to maintain the highest quality of care, and the highest safety, all those challenges coming together make it very difficult. But I think the most powerful thing that Darcy said was right at the end that by doing all this right, there's hope that we're going to get through it. And she feels hopeful. And I think that we should all feel hopeful that we are going to overcome the pandemic. Thanks to people like her and all the other people we've heard from on this podcast doing the valuable work that they do to keep us safe. Join us next time for the next episode of Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries. You can rate and review us on Google, Apple, Spotify, Podcast Republic, wherever you listen to your podcasts or find your podcasts or press search in your podcast. Give us a rating. The people upstairs tell us that this is very important and makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. Yes, feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested or could benefit from the information provided here. Emergency Room is written and presented by Matthew Hall and Guy Madison. Produced by Guy Madison, Matthew Hall and Ruinous Media. The music you hear in this podcast is by Mud Honey. Beauty Hunters. Plant. Or plant. Palm Frauds. And if you'd like to contact us. All you need to do is go to ruinousmedia.com. Their homepage will direct you to the COVID Diaries podcast and you can contact Ruinous directly if you need to send us a message.